Well, good morning. I'm so happy to see you all this morning. Um, as Tammy mentioned, I'm Kristen. I have been uh, married to my husband, Bill, for about a little over 13 years now. We've been in Charlotte and at New City about the same amount of time. And as she mentioned, I do have two daughters. Um, our oldest is in second grade and our youngest is in pre-K. And I think those are really fun ages. I'm enjoying them. Um, and I am thrilled to be here with y'all this morning to get to see your faces. Well, at least your eyes, see your eyes. It's really nice to be able to actually make some eye contact with some people this morning. Um, so last week, if you were able to be here with us, um, Christine walked us through Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul is describing to us the utter depravity of those who suppress the truth, those who know God but do not honor him as God. And um, these are the people that today we might think as the unreligious people. Um, but Paul is writing Romans to uh, people that we would understand to be religious people. He's writing to Roman and Jewish believers so uh, I can imagine that when they hear Paul's description of these unreligious people, they probably get to kind of sit back a little bit, take a deep, oh, I'm doing it, aren't I? I am. Take a deep breath, relax, and think, um, I don't suppress the truth. I honor God, and so Paul is not talking to me. I'm in the clear. Now, I know that... There may be some of us who at some point in our lives in the past, maybe even the present, would have fallen into the category of the unreligious. Um, but I would venture to guess that many of us, maybe even most of us, fall into the category of Paul's listeners. And we can be really tempted um, to hear that description that Paul gave us last week in chapter 1 and go, well, I haven't set up an idol in my backyard recently. And I certainly haven't killed anybody, so thank goodness I'm good. Paul's not talking to me. But it's almost as if Paul is anticipating the relief and the excuses of his listeners when he starts chapter 2. Chapter 2 starts with the words, You may think you condemn such people, but you're just as bad. And those are some tough words to hear. We're just as bad. Paul's telling us that we point our finger at our neighbors, at the people around us, but we do the same things that they do. And lest we be tempted to write Paul off and say, no, I don't. Let's put our, um, let's, uh, put our finger right here in verse 1. Uh, yeah, right there in verse 1. And let's go back. Take the other finger and trace back to um, Romans verse 29. And let's look at that. Let's consider that list for just a minute. Um, I am reading from the NLT, so let's consider that list for just a minute. Paul lists out, um, oh, you know what? There are some things you need to know. I skipped a whole chunk. I need to get back into the rhythm of doing this. Paul wants us to know some really important things. Before we look at that list, 
in all of chapter, these first 16 verses of chapter 2, when we are going to be going through this together, he's going to show us some things. The first thing he's going to show us is that we are all deserving of judgment. And that's where this list in 29 is going to come in in just a second. Y'all forgive me. Um, we all deserve judgment. And the second thing he's going to show us is that only God is in the position to be our true and righteous judge. And then he's going to show us that God rightly judges us on the basis of what we have done. And God judges impartially. So we don't like to think of God's judgment and his wrath. Um, it doesn't seem to jive with our idea of him as good and kind and loving God. Um, but I promise that they go hand in hand. And I promise that when we get to the end, if you stick through with me and kind of bear with my getting my feet under me again, um, we will see that there is reason for great hope and great joy, even in the midst of understanding this concept of judgment. Um, so now, let's go back to chapter 2. And actually, you know what, before we go to that list, I'm going to read us some verses in chapter 2 real quick. We're going to read... Um, verse starting with verse 1, and we're going to go through 3. Um, Paul says, You may think you can condemn such people, and as a reminder, I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself, for you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do these same things? So now let's put our finger here and let's trace back to verse 29 in chapter 1. And let's consider this list because I think when we hear Paul tell us that we do the same things, it's really tempting to kind of write it off and ignore it and think, nah, like so this is language that makes these things um, in our kind of broken, sinful minds sound really awful, and it's easy for us to um, think we're not so bad. So let's look at this list. Um, one, two of the first things that uh, Paul calls out is greed and envy. And this, um, I think, is the concept of discontent. I'm sure none of us in our life has ever wanted something other than what God has given us. I'm sure none of us have ever kind of looked around us and said, I wish I had that job or that relationship or that kind of family. Um, so discontent, I, we have all experienced that well up in us. He also points out gossip, slander, deceit. And this deceit is not just outright lies. It's misrepresenting the truth. It's maybe kind of tweaking the details a little bit. It is, um, it is lies by omission or maybe even covering some things up. He talks about quarreling, which is antagonizing, conflict for the sake of conflict, for, for the sake of getting one up on someone else. And these things, I think, kind of fall under this category of controlling our tongues. I know that it is hard to control our tongues. And I know that um, our words have power and they can be dangerous. Um, and then he points out some things like insolence. And this is the idea of being rude or arrogant towards other people in our speech or our actions. Um, he calls these people heartless. 
they have no mercy. The English Standard Version calls it being ruthless. Um, and this is a disregard for others in the way that we think and that we act. And the reality is that we have all probably at one time or another treated people unkindly, harshly, unfairly, with disregard. Um, so for those of us who claim Christ, let's take a minute and let's think in our minds about um, who we would be if it wasn't for Jesus changing our hearts. It is not hard for me to imagine this. Um, I, when I was a junior, senior in high school, I earned myself a somewhat unflattering nickname. I was called by the guys in my class, Ice. Um, I did not have much tolerance for teenage boy shenanigans, and I often felt like I was kind of above such behavior, and it sometimes led me to treat some of them with kind of a coldness, hence the nickname Ice. Um, it was a nickname that was all in good fun, and it was kind of cool to be seen as above that kind of foolish behavior. But as I have thought back over the years on that nickname and kind of realized that they were probably right to call me out with that nickname. Um, it gave me a little glimpse into the darkness that can be in my own heart sometimes and in the way that I treat other people. So when I think about who I could be without Jesus's work in my heart, I can point out some things on that list. I can point out insolence. I can point out heartlessness and, and maybe even some deception because it's hard for me to admit when I'm wrong. It is hard for me to take the blame that is deserved sometimes. And, and I did not love um, having to own up to the fact that maybe I didn't always treat people the way that I should have. Um, unless we actively spend time considering it, we can easily forget how desperately we need Jesus. And then we can look around at others and we can get a pretty big head on our shoulders and we might even begin to treat people with some disrespect and some disdain. And Paul has a word for this, and it's on his list too, and it's called pride. And that's um, it's one I think we all struggle with at some point or another. And frankly, judging others is its own form of suppressing the truth. Because, spoiler alert, the truth is we've all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And that's a hard truth for us to swallow, so we try to point fingers at others in an effort to make ourselves feel a little bit better. Um, Pastor Max and author Max Licato puts it this way, the easiest way to justify the mistakes in my house is to find worse ones in my neighbor's house. So when Paul is calling us out for judging others, I want to be clear that he is not talking about acknowledging right and wrong. He is not talking about holding ourselves or others accountable to God's moral standard. What he is warning us against is issuing a verdict and handing down a sentence. He's warning us against saying, you are guilty and you are condemned. And when we do that, we are walking on dangerous ground because we are putting ourselves in a place that is reserved for God alone. 
Which brings us to the second thing Paul wants us to understand. Only God is our true and righteous judge. Um, I am going to read real quick in Romans 2, starting at verse 2 and going through 5. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Um, I kind of I want to point out a couple of these verses and the way they're translated in the English Standard Version. Verse 2 says um, in the ESV that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And verse 5 says that we're storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And these concepts of wrath and judgment are concepts that can stir up some indignation in us, and it can lead us to ask this question, who is God to judge me? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'd like to share um, just a small handful of things that make God uniquely qualified to be our just judge. And the first thing is that God has authority to judge us as our creator and our king. The very, very, very first words in all of scripture are, in the beginning, God created. The first um, verses of the Bible make it very clear that God alone is the creator of all things. And then throughout the Bible, we see God set up as king. Um, Psalm 99, it tells us the Lord is king. The Lord sits in majesty, exalted above all the nations. And because of his position as creator and king, he has authority. Uh, Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35 show us that God's rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? So as the one who made us and rules over us, God alone has the ultimate and unquestionable authority to be our judge. So he has authority. Also, God is holy and he is perfect. And this is his holiness. This characteristic is one that also shows up in the Bible over and over and over again. And um, perhaps one of the best remembered scenes for those of you who have... um, studied your Bible for a little while, shows up in Isaiah and in Revelation. And we know that God's um, throne room rings out with the praise of his holiness. There are creatures constantly calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And understanding God's holiness and his perfection matter for two reasons. And the first is that his holiness is the standard that we are called to meet. And it is the standard by which he will judge us. Um, Leviticus 19, God says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Unless we think that that is an Old Testament, Old Covenant commandment, Jesus 
reiterates and reemphasizes that command in Matthew. He says, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the second reason God's holiness matters to us um, comes from author Jackie Hill Perry. She says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against you. In his holiness, God cannot misjudge us. He alone is our true and righteous judge because he alone can judge us perfectly. God is omnipresent, which means that he is ever and everywhere present. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23 and 24 tells us that am I a God who is only close at hand? No, I'm far away at the same time. Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all heavens and earth? Another author and teacher, Jen Wilkin, tells us that all of God is fully present in all places, past, present, and future. Put simply, there is no place or time where God is not. So he is everywhere at all times. He is also omni, omniscient. He is all-knowing. God tells us in Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God knows every fact of every case, all the way down to the secret motivations hidden in our hearts. So he can rightly judge us on the basis of his full and complete knowledge of all people at all times in all places. Again, Jen Wilkin puts it this way, the God who is everywhere fully present, the God who holds all knowledge, is infinitely suited to fulfill the role of just judge. And then two more quick things. God is self-sufficient, meaning he needs nothing. Acts 17, 24, and 25 tells us that he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. So this means that God cannot be bribed or manipulated or corrupted, which means he can judge us fairly and honestly. And the last thing is that God is immutable. That means he does not change. And scripture, again, is constantly reminding us of God's inability to change. God in himself tells us about it in Malachi 3, 6. I am the Lord, and I do not change. And this is good news for us, because that means he judges us consistently. What is evil is always evil. What is righteous is always righteous. It is, his judgment is not subject to mood or whim or change of character, and we can have confidence in his verdict. So who is God to judge us? He is the holy, ever-present, all-knowing, never-needing, unchanging creator and king of the universe. And if he's not perfectly suited to be our judge, I don't know who is. So shouldn't we trust his judgment? Now, we've established that he's the only true and righteous judge, but that leaves the question, how do we reconcile his wrath and judgment with his love? And, um, I think we can look to God himself again for the answer. He uh, describes this as part of his 
character. In Exodus, he is passing before Moses, and he is declaring himself to Moses. And he says, he describes himself as a God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and forgiveness. He forgives iniquity and rebellion and sin, but he doesn't excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of parents upon their children and their grandchildren. So God doesn't seem to have a problem with this tension because it's in himself. And Paul touches on how we can learn to live with it with our, for ourselves. Um, verse 4, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? If you'll remember from our discussion of God's character, the standard is perfection, and we fail to meet it over and over and over. And as the true and righteous judge, God has every right to strike us down. But he doesn't. He is slow to anger. He um, shows restraint towards us. And when we rightly understand our failure to meet God's um, standard, when we understand the magnitude of our failure and how deserving we are of destruction as a result of that failure, um, we then rightly see God's compassion and his mercy and his patience for what it is, good and kind and loving. So how can we not turn from our sin that doesn't satisfy and run to him with grateful hearts? So we understand God is the true and righteous judge, and now we ask the question, how does he judge? And Paul gives us an answer. He judges based on what we've done. Verse um, 6 through 10, he will judge everyone according to what they have Oh, according to what they have done, he will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. Um, this concept of being judged based on what we have done is a hard one for me. It's one that I wrestle with a lot um, as a believer who claims Christ, but still wrestles with sinful flesh, that I'm going to be judged based on what I these are tough concepts for me, so I am going to allow pastor and author Tim Keller to inform our dis discussion here, because I don't always have all these answers. Um, and he showed, Tim Keller shows us that Romans 6 is a reference back to Psalm 62. It's like a little hyperlink here. Um, and in Psalm 62, the psalmist, David, describes two different kinds of people. He describes the person who trusts in God, that person waits on God, that person hopes in God, that person um, sees God as the rock and their salvation. And then there is a second kind of person that is pointed out in Psalm 62. It's a person who lives by extortion, a person who hopes in stealing, a person who centers their lives on wealth. And Tim Keller says this, so in Romans 2, 6, Paul is asking both the irreligious person and the religious person to consider what they have done, or rather, not done. Neither has repented, seeking refuge from God's deserved wrath and God's undeserved mercy. 
And I want you to notice something important in these verses. Paul tells us that we will be judged by what we have done. He does not tell us we will be saved by what we have done. And Keller explains this a little bit too, that the works are the evidence of our salvation, not the basis of our salvation. So the most important thing we can do is trust Jesus. And when we choose to trust Jesus, that choice will be evident in the life that we live. A person who um, trusts Jesus and has right standing with God, who is justified before God, does good, seeks after glory and honor and immortality that God offers. In essence, they have a heart that lives in submission to God. And the outcome for this person is eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. A person who is without right standing before God, who is not justified by God, lives for themselves and refuses to obey truth. They live a life of wickedness. And this is a person whose heart is not in submission to God. They live for themselves only. And the outcome here is God's anger and his wrath, trouble, and calamity. So now we come to the final thing that Paul wants his believing listeners to understand. God is the true and righteous judge. He judges on what we have done, and he judges us impartially. Romans, starting uh, verse 9 and going through to the end of 16. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Um, for God does not show favoritism. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate God's laws written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Paul um, repeats this phrase twice in 9 and 10, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And clearly he's trying to make a point here, and he makes it in verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. And that would have been an outrageous statement to Jewish listeners because they understood themselves to be God's um, people. They were set apart from all others. They were, in essence, special. They were the favorites. But who a person is doesn't matter in God's courtroom. We are all equally accountable. So Paul first calls out his Jewish listeners. He says, you have the law, you know the standard, and still you fail to meet it. So having the law doesn't excuse you from judgment. And then he calls out his Gentile listeners. He says, you don't have the law, but you still have this intrinsic moral code of right and wrong written on your hearts and your minds. So having no law does not make you exempt from judgment. Um, Tim Keller explains it this way again. Paul is answering the objection, how can people be judged according to a standard they didn't know? How can judgment be just if those who don't know God's, God's law 
perish apart from the law. And Paul's answer here is that God's law is inborn in people. All people know essential principles of right and wrong behavior and their basis in reality, a standard by which we are to be judged. So to recap, we all deserve judgment. Only God is our true and righteous judge. He judges based on what we have done, and he judges us all equally, impartially. So why does it matter that we fully understand our sinful nature? Why does it matter that we understand God's place as our just judge um, and the reality of his coming wrath? Well, former NFL player Benjamin Watson puts it this way, until you see yourself as a sinner, you won't need to see your need for a savior. At the beginning of our time together, I promised you a reason for hope and joy, and here it is. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you catch that? In forgiving our sins, God is not only being faithful towards us, he is being just towards us. Because when we were stuck in our own sin, Jesus Christ lived the life that we can never live. He died the death that we were meant to die. And he rescues us, and he redeems us, and he restores us to new life again. I'll reference Jen Wilkin one more time. She says, because Christ was punished in our place, God would be unjust to punish us for a sin that has already received its recompense, that has already received its payment. We are justified, meaning we are made right before God in Christ. So what do we do with all this knowledge? Because if you'll remember, Paul in these verses tells us it's not just about hearing, it's also about doing. Here are a few ideas um, along with some scripture references. I'm not going to read out every scripture reference. If you get a chance, you can jot them down and kind of maybe use them for your own personal meditation. But here are some steps we can take. We can ask God to search our hearts and make our sin known to us. We can allow God's kindness and his patience and his mercy and his restraint towards us to soften our hearts. We can confess our sin to God and praise him for the forgiveness and the justification that is available to us through Jesus. And we can invite the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and minds, asking him to empower us to live in the light of Christ, to live in a way that is evident of our choice to surrender and submit our hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for the time that we get to be together today. I pray that you would um, soften our hearts towards this idea of your judgment and your wrath, that we would understand um, the gravity of our sin, the weight of it, and that we would see your kindness and your goodness and your mercy in light of those things, in light of the punishment that we deserve, but that you have... Um, chosen to lay upon Christ if we are willing to trust him. Help us to go out this week with mindfulness of your renewing work in our hearts and minds 
mindfulness of how the way we choose to act and speak and behave um, are a reflection of you in us. Now as we go into our groups together, I pray that the words of our mouths and the focus and thoughts of our hearts would be pleasing to you because we love you. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.